Amen. Welcome in. Lake Kick is live. It is Thursday night, May 6th, the year of our Lord, 2021. Jam-packed on Twitter, I called it the No Scrubs, No X-Season edition because we don't even use the dirty word around here. We've got, by the way, speaking of Twitter, before we even dive in, just a wicked debate raging today. One of those classical spring hypotheticals. Director Emeritus Colin, I didn't pose this to you, so I'll do it now. If you could take any movie character, any one movie character, entire history of cinematic masterpieces left and right, and you can make that movie character, commissioner of college football, who is it? Because for me, it is unmistakably Quint from the movie Jaws. I'll take your comments off the air. Uh, Surprise teams in 2021. I know there are the usual suspects out there. We got a lot more tonight to talk about on the show, though. So I'm going to highlight several. I think a couple are going to be well off the radar. But boy, I went down a rabbit hole last night. I was up at like 2 o'clock in the morning reading and kind of um, deep diving, let's say, some specific teams. So I'll discuss that tonight. The transfer portal. All righty, now it's happening. That second wave that we talked about coming, well, it's here. And now we're immersed in it. And now, like our society tends to do, it's time to fix it. Got to fix it. Got to fix it. Well, I've made my thoughts on that clear, but we're going to attack it from a different angle tonight. How about the path from being a former two-star to being a top 100 draft pick, or as you may know them, millionaires? Bud Elliott put a real good piece out yesterday that I wanted to bookmark and I wanted to hit tonight because there's that whole star rankings don't matter crowd, and we like to address them every so often. And then there is the, well, if you're a two-star, does that mean that all hope is lost in your screwed crowd? No, that doesn't mean that either. So there's a happy medium there, and we're going to try and strike it. We're going to try and find it on the show tonight. Also, we got some more impact transfers to talk about. As the transfer portal continues to fill, and as the turnstile continues to turn, inevitably we've got more impact transfers to talk about. A couple of them high profile, a couple of them that you may not even know have switched Schools that are going to be really, really deciding factors in some division raises this year. Raises and races this year. So thank you so much for being tuned in. Like the video. If you haven't already and you're watching live, let's get that thing up there. Here's why I talk about 50 all the time. When you get us to the 50 like mark, it helps us get boosted in the old-fashioned algorithm here on YouTube. So um, it's free to do. Doesn't cost a dime. Click the uh, little thumbs up video. Thank you so much for that. What you'll notice tonight on the program is we have a precious lack of college football playoff expansion talk. They're not sucking me in. We said our piece last week, and if need be, we will be drawn back in, but only when there is definitive announcements being made, and I think maybe by June we'll start to hear something. Just a little whisper in the industry. Maybe June is the time where you'll hear something. Not until then. So I know everyone's putting out their hypothetical 8, 12, 16, 32. Why not just make it all 113 playoff proposals? We are hashtag four and no more around here, but I know some of you feel differently. Nevertheless, I'm not going to bother you with it tonight because we have more important pressing issues to talk about. And I wanted, before I dive in tonight, to just give a little pitch. The Late Kick Extra podcast, we put it out Tuesday morning, Thursday morning. A lot of you have been asking me about betting, how we talk about betting on the show. We got the Ramen Noodle Express, obviously, that chugged its way to just over 60% against the number last year. We didn't brag about it. Well, yeah, we did. And I'm doing it right now. We were really good. We were really good on our betting picks last year. We have been for a long time. But the way that we format it's a little bit different. So I put some mainstream gambling talk in the show in the fall, but I know some of you don't bet, and I know some of you will never will, but you're kind of interested from maybe a strictly odds-making angle or just knowing who's favored. Or if I were to tell you 
Alabama versus Clemson right now. Who'd be favored by how much on a neutral field? You like that kind of stuff. So that's what we fill the show with. But today on the Late Kick Extra podcast, I kind of started to tease and hint at how we're going to talk about it really deep dive style in the fall. Because there will be a time and a place to come to in the fall where we go infinitely deeper in sports betting talk, in college football betting talk than I ever did last year. But the thing about it is it may not be right here on Late Kick Live but it may absolutely be here on the iJosh. So when you hear me keep telling you at Late Kick Josh over there on Instagram, for example, that account, on Twitter, on that account, you know, both those platforms, they have live capability too. And so without further ado, we're going to dive into the show. I would just encourage you be following me on those accounts at Late Kick Josh. Let us dive in tonight. How about some surprise teams? Everyone wants to be smart every day of the week, but especially around the water cooler this time of year, you want to be the guy that in April or May was telling you that team was coming so that when they have arrived in November, you can look back, cross your arms, sit over in the corner and say, I told you so. Four of the most beautiful words when combined correctly in the English language. So you pick yours, I'll pick mine. The definition here is define the expectation level that the public has who is going to overachieve relative to the college football public's perception of what they'll be this year. I think LSU very well could be one of those teams. Now, you could choose either of these things, and it would have been bad. But imagine both of these things happening to you last year. They had, I don't know, I was talking to Shea Dixon a little while ago. I was asking him, what was that final number? The number of guys that were on the 2019 team that weren't on the 2020 team, and it was like 35 or 40 or something like that, when you combined all the attrition and the draft departures So yeah, that's tough. And you got to deal with all the typical potential complacency issues of coming off a national championship. But then when you're trying to replace offensive coordinator and the like, you understand what I mean when I say replace offensive coordinator, you have the pandemic thrown in and you don't get spring and you're trying to break in a new quarterback too and you don't get spring. So having said all that, as I've told you many times, I'll probably say this a couple of times on the show tonight, I believe COVID impacted everyone. I just think it disproportionately impacted some programs. So LSU dealt with all that, plus the usual mess you deal with on steroids, as a matter of fact, from coming off a national championship. Why do I say all that? I'm not taking away 2020. It was what it was. What I'm saying about them, just as much as I'll say about the next program I'm going to talk about, I do not think 2020 is the case study. I don't think that's the data point that I want to go to as the end-all, be-all barometer of what to expect from this program in the future. It is very hard, as I've told you before, it's really hard for me to look at these quarterbacks they have at LSU. Maybe it's Max Johnson, maybe it's Miles Brennan, but whichever one, whomstever it is, as I like to say, a quarterback, whichever one gets that job with the talent they're going to have around them, I'm confident beyond Keishon Butte, that they fill that wide receiver core with proven commodities on the field. I'm very confident that, well, let's be honest, there's nowhere to go but up defensively with Durante Jones coming in as the defensive coordinator. I'm confident that I'll get a good enough product, and it is really hard. If you got good quarterback play, and I think they will have good enough quarterback play, and you got the kind of raw talent they have overall, tire roster, it's really hard for me to see them just cruise into another 500 finish. Not impossible. Worst things have happened, but it's hard for me to envision that. So give me LSU there. How about Penn State? You know my thoughts on Penn State. Or if you're new to the program, let me tell you. I think this program, pound for pound, was about as disproportionately impacted by COVID as any program of the major variety in America last year. I want you to get in your mind what you think about Penn State right now. That's my cord stuck behind me. Think about your perception of Penn State football. So I'm going to blow your mind. 
because mine was blown last night. I was watching a replay of a game from 2019. Actually, I was watching LSU Alabama from 2019. And so they're coming back from break on CBS, and there's Brad Nessler, and there's Gary Danielson, and they're going over that day's action. And they put up the college football playoff rankings, right? And they're showing you this game is LSU versus Alabama. It's number two versus number three. Ohio State was number one. What would you do if I told you as late as week 12 of the 2019 season, the Penn State and Nittany Lions were number four in the college football playoff rankings? That feels like previous decade. That feels like if you have a 12-year-old son, he wasn't even walking the last time that Penn State was ranked in the top five of the playoff. It was just two years ago. And so what I'm saying is they fell off a cliff last year. We got to ask ourselves, do we really just think they were that bad? Do we really think that James Franklin and his coaching staff, they just forgot? They just lost the magic sauce. Do we believe all that? Or could it be more likely that whatever 2020 brought with it, it just disproportionately impacted this team? I happen to buy into the latter mentality. If you buy into the former, that's fine. That's what they play the games for. New offense. Uh, By the way, Mike Yurcich is the new offensive coordinator here. There have been two names that I have just butchered the entire spring. And it's not that I don't know them. It's that sometimes I get the wrong names in my head. Mike Yursich is a perfect example because I have been thoroughly convinced that the man's name is Tom Yursich. I've known him. I've covered him. I've been in the same room with him. And yet it happens. The other one, you FSU fans know what I'm talking about, is Jordan Travis down there at FSU. I've been calling him Travis Hunter, who ironically enough is committed and enrolling at Florida State. And so those two names have really thrown me for a loop. They're not hard either. It's not like it's Tonga Vailoa or Iwiangalale. But nevertheless, Mike Yersich. Yeah, my for short. New offense, same quarterback, Sean Clifford there, and a transfer out of Penn State that I'm going to talk about in just a second. I've got all the confidence in the world they'll rebound this year. I'm not telling you they're there neck and neck with Ohio State down the stretch for the Big Ten Championship or anything like that. I'm just telling you, I don't think that there is an ounce's worth of expectation amongst the college football public now about Penn State this year. Granted, it's viewed as Ohio State's conference and everyone else as a distant second, third, fourth, and that's fine. Maybe that's still the case. But I think this team will be a lot more quality this year than they were last year. Now I want to go somewhere that's really off the beaten path. Because this one was the one that I spent a whole lot of time on last night. I know some of you in the bluegrass state, you think I focus on about four or five teams. Well, how about you being one of them? Kentucky probably has the quietest, tangible confidence of any program in America right now. The Kentucky Wildcats could fundamentally change the SEC Eastern Division conversation in 2021. Here's what you're used to. Georgia, Florida, and then dot, dot, dot. Is Tennessee going to be back? Will South Carolina get it figured out? Well, what if I told you it's Kentucky that will insert their name squarely into that mix? And maybe not just for the number three spot in the SEC, maybe for as high as the number two spot in the SEC East. I'm looking at them, and if I were to do the old put the paper bag over the head so you can't tell it's Kentucky, and we were to just look at the resume, figuratively, of course, if we were to just look at the resume, man, they're doing really good things there. I don't know how many people realize this. I wrote it down. I mean, there were only seven. Do you realize this? I want you to think about what I'm about to say. I'm going to say it really slowly. There were only seven programs in America this last NFL draft that sent more kids to the draft than Kentucky. Not as a state, not collectively, not WKU, Louisville, and Kentucky. The University of Kentucky, there were only seven. The Alabamas and Ohio States and Georgias of the world, only seven of them out there sent more kids to the NFL via the draft this past cycle than Kentucky. And yet still, 
Their roster is as loaded as it's been. Their recruiting consistently upticking. Mark Stoops not bashful at all, talking very recently about how he's got more energy and feels better about the stature of the program right now than he has at any point since he's been there. And here's how you know he's not lying. He felt so confident, and he felt the time was right to change the offense. That's something you never say about Mark Stoops. And I know, again, a lot of you probably aren't paying attention to what's going on at Kentucky right now. I'm just telling you, beat the rush. Liam Cohen is a name, new offensive coordinator there, that you'll start to hear as like SEC media days approach. Okay, Wandell Robinson's a name that some of you, if you're hardcore, you already know. But as you start to get closer to media days, you'll start hearing that Kentucky got a big transfer or two because Will Levis, the quarterback transfer from Penn State, is also coming in and is going to figure very prominently in this quarterback rotation. Probably, I would even say the favorite to eventually win that starting job. But it does not stop there. Even with all these NFL draft departures, they got an All-American tackle coming back. They got their best running back coming back. They got their top three pass catchers coming back and adding Wondell Robinson to the mix. This is an actual legitimate top 25 team. I believe that. And I also believe they are going to have a lot to say about the pecking order in the SEC East this year. Now, The more northern version of this is Wisconsin. Wisconsin, again, is just in the wrong conference because it's Ohio State drowning out everyone else in the room, so you don't hear a lot of noise about Wisconsin. But see, you got a taste of it last year. They go into week one, and they smoked whoever it was. I think they splattered Illinois all over the place. You got a taste of it, and then it got taken from you. You got to see Graham Mertz shine for one game, and then it got taken from you. And what I mean by taken is their season got derailed by COVID. And a lot of their guys, they had a wide receiver out for concussion protocol most of the year. They had guys off the roster because they tested positive, and you never got to see the real Wisconsin. And so then you fast forward a year, a lot of those names are back. I feel really good that they are one of the most underrated wide receiver rooms in America. Wisconsin's got Paul Christ, head coach there, taking over play calling duties because what I think he's done is he's looked at what he's got at quarterback believes in Graham Mertz, one of the higher-rated quarterbacks you'll have come through there, loves his receiver room, and understands they got an opportunity to do something good there this year and do it in a surprising fashion because here's how the schedule shakes out. They have some big games this year. They do every year. They play in the Big Ten. They play Penn State. They play Notre Dame. They play Michigan. I don't think that surprises you, but it may surprise you if I tell you those three teams are among the first four they play. So I want you to think again about what I just said. If Wisconsin has quarterback figured out, if their offense is in sync, if it does gel, if it looks really for an extended period of time like it did week one last year, who are we talking about them starting with? Penn State installing a new offense again. Even though I believe in them, maybe shaky early on, then they play Notre Dame. Jack Cohn, ironically, former quarterback at Wisconsin transferring down there, they're doing new things offensively. Michigan, they're doing new things offensively. And so could you catch a significant portion of the big boys on your schedule off guard or maybe off balance a little bit early in the season? Because if you do, then all of a sudden you've gotten past the meat of your schedule and there you are a primetime contender for the playoff conversation and all that by mid-season. That'd be interesting and I don't think a lot of people expect it. And last but not least, How about Oregon? Now, Oregon's already in the playoff conversation, as much as you can be in the Pac-12 right now. They haven't knocked the door down yet, at least lately. But what I'm talking specifically about with Oregon is not, oh, no one will see him coming. Most people are going to have Oregon around the top 10, I would imagine. 
But I don't think that people are fully realizing how good they're going to be at receiver this year. You see, you've probably watched Oregon the first couple of years under Mario Cristobal, and you've just assumed this team right here, they're good overall. The collective product's good. They're recruiting good. They play solid defense, or at least that's what I'm going to expect from them. But this is not a team that's going to light up the scoreboard. Now, I'm not telling you incrementally last year to this year they're going to add 30 points per game to their total or anything like that. I think you're going to be really surprised at how loaded they are at receiver. And I think people may be mildly to moderately surprised at the quarterback play that you get because you have not really heard the name Anthony Brown all that much, and that's the guy I believe will start for them. You may think, well, if Ty Thompson couldn't win that job, well, then what does that mean? Well, I think it means you got a pretty quality option up there in Anthony Brown that you couldn't take the job from. And not only that, this is not a guy that's going to have to shoulder the load by himself. So I think Oregon could go. Now, this is all could. This is all hypothetical, so I could change every one of these. But what Oregon could do is they could go from being nice Pac-12 story to one that you look out there midway through the season and say, you know, have you watched Oregon? They, I'm looking out there and they, yeah, they're beating the teams they're supposed to beat, but they seem like they could actually beat some teams they're not supposed to beat. You know, those more Southern type or, or big boy Midwestern type teams. I think they would uh, hold their own against them too. I, I'd love to see Oregon against Oklahoma. You know, now that I think about it, they go to Ohio State in week two. So it won't take that long for us to realize how real a deal or not Oregon is. So those are some surprise teams. Be very interested to get your feedback on that. I peruse through the comments a lot, especially on videos like that. Let's move on and talk about the old transfer portal mess. Had a buddy from Round Rock, Texas today asking me about this. Boy, they love us in Round Rock. I've said it once. I've said it a million times. So the transfer portal... It is indeed a mess. I'm not going to push back on that. We told you that we expected a second wave of transfers coming. It is now happening. I even think that in the future, the majority of the transfers could end up happening after spring because that's really when you learn where you stand on that year's version of your current team. And so here we go now. We're out of spring and we're going into the summer months you cannot take two hours break right now. I can't even take a two-hour lunch because when we get back and we refresh 247sports.com front page, five different guys have entered the transfer portal. And it's a crazy time right now. One of many reasons why I tell you there is no off-season. doesn't exist, especially this time of year. Well, what do you think is going to happen after this? All of a sudden, what's going to happen after this is then you're going to have a recruiting surge, kind of already happening. I mean, we got camps. we got camps all over the place this weekend. we got camps going on in a time of year where you're not used to them happening. And that's partly because of the way the calendar's structured now. And it's also partly because COVID had kind of pushed everything to where when things finally open back up, you really got to make hay. But I want to reiterate two things before I dive into what I want to talk about here. And that's my stance on this. Told you what I feel about the transfer portal. A, I think it's a misconception out there right now that a majority of the risk is taken on by the program. Everyone's worried about their team and what if all these guys transfer out and we can't replace them. And I understand in the immediacy, yes, that wouldn't be good if Arkansas had 15 kids walk out the door. And I'm going to address that in a second because it is a problem and it is actually the portion of this whole deal that I think the NCAA may need to take action on. But Arkansas is going to field a team this fall. You walk out the door having been a part of the University of Arkansas football team, and you've been there two years, and let's say you got two years remaining, and you enter the transfer portal because you were running with the twos at outside linebacker at Arkansas spring practice, you may get swallowed up by that portal. You may land somewhere, or you may get swallowed up, but I'm telling you, and more and more you're going to realize this, there's infinitely more risk taken on by the individual player entering the portal than there ever will be absorbed by the program 
from losing a player to the portal. But that I've talked about already. The second part of this is I do not believe that the NCAA needs to step in overall. I believe there's one area the NCAA needs to address that's been very short-sighted so far in nature, and I'm going to get to it. But a lot of your proposals right now are basically this. There are a lot of kids in the transfer portal. They're idiots. They don't know what they're doing. Or maybe they're not idiots, but they shouldn't just be able to walk out when the going gets tough. And so I don't like this. And so they need to put a stop to this. Well, number one, I don't know how in the world you think that would work. But number two, even if there were just a magic break glass here and press button in case of emergency scenario that they had, I don't think they should press it. That's that whole training wheel society that I'm not really a huge fan of. And it's, it's on display right now. It's kind of like I used to tell you all the time, watching the baby bird hatch, and you constantly, you know, if you got the wrong person watching the baby bird hatch, they feel like they need to reach in and, and, and peel the shell away. Baby birds have been coming out of eggs for long before you've been around, and they've come out just fine. And if they didn't, survival of the fittest, nature can be cruel. Most of the time, fortunately, you don't have to observe it. But it works if you'll just leave it alone. It could be ugly. It could be really, really nasty but it ends up working out. And that bald eagle that you see when you go on your camping trip, at one point, it was just a little bird trying to push its way out of the egg. Now, how does that possibly apply to a linebacker thinking about whether or whether or not he should leave New Mexico State? Well, here's what I mean. It's going to be ugly. I'm not telling you it's not going to be. But what I am confident in is that eventually this will correct itself if you'll just keep your hands off of it. In the interim, again, let me reiterate, it's going to be ugly. There is a lot of pushback that I get when I suggest this. I've done a lot of radio hits on this, and a lot of the pushback is, well, what about a guy's career? It could be ruined if he goes into the portal and there's nowhere to land for him. And you're right. There are going to be some careers that are ruined. There are going to be some opportunities of a lifetime that are flushed down the toilet because guys make poor decisions. Then I get the pushback, what if the guy's getting bad advice? It's going to happen. It's happening right now. By the dozens, by the hundreds, guys are getting horrible advice, and they're listening to it from people who have never done anything worthwhile in their life, and because they haven't, then they're trying to project their failure on you, and you're their ticket out, and so if you're not playing right now, you need to be over here where you can play. It's happening. It's going to happen. It's going to be terrible. It is what it is. The third piece of feedback that I get and really push back a lot of times is, what about high school players that are being passed over by schools that are looking to fill their roster gaps via the transfer portal. It's a problem. I don't think it's going to be a long-term problem. That's happening right now, and it's not going to be as big a problem, I think, five years down the road because of number four, and that is college programs in some cases, not just the player. The program is about to learn the hard way how math works. Because a lot of them out there don't seem to understand it at the moment, and maybe you don't understand it, but that's okay, because you work nine to five as an accountant, and you have a normal life. You're not a head football coach. You're not in the executive department that's responsible for roster management for LSU or for uh, Oklahoma, fill in the blank. I'm not singling out those programs. I'm just mentioning the fact that there is something going on right now that you're about to see a tidal wave of negative feedback from. Let me ask you, how do you think it works? How do you th- when you lose a guy, let's say, let's say you're Tennessee, and a guy walks out the door right now. Let's say you got 75 kids on scholarship, and you're about to have a class walk out the door, so however many go to the draft or graduate, all that's about to be accounted for too. But let's say you got 75. That means you're already 10 below the threshold. 85 is the max. So you got 75. You already got a little bit of a number situation on your hands. Let's say, even on top of all the kids you're going to lose in any given year, let's say five of them 
choose to transfer. In reality, the situation's worse at Tennessee. But let's say you have five of them that transfer out. You just went from 75 to 70. Okay, now you may think to yourself, all right, well, let's just go into the transfer portal ourselves, and then we'll pull five out of the transfer portal to fill that spot. Then our next recruiting class of 25 kids will come in, and we'll be good, right? It would be good if that were right, but that's not right, because that's not the way the math works. You see, here's the dirty secret that a lot of programs are starting to realize and starting to do the math on and go, whoa, we're about to dig ourselves into a real deep hole. When those kids leave your program, you don't get an extra scholarship in next year's recruiting class. So when Tennessee has five walk out the door, the number of kids you can take doesn't go from 25 to 30. That'd be great. Then we wouldn't have a numbers crunch on our hands. No, it stays at 25. Here's where it gets even more complex. When those five walk out the door, every transfer that you take to fill those spots counts towards your 25 cap for this year. You can only bring 25 of them in. So if I have five kids transfer from Pate State and I bring five transfers in, that's wonderful. I can only take another 20 combined. Recruiting, transfers, they all count towards that same 25 number. And quickly, you see how that law of diminishing returns really starts to enter the equation because you say, it doesn't matter if we have kids leave via the portal, we'll just take them via the portal. That's great. They're going to count. They're going to count against that 25 number. And so here's what's happening. What's happening is you've got the penny-wise, pound-foolish approach by some programs right now of putting basically the lawnmower over the weed. You got kids walking out via the portal. We'll take them via the portal. But then they wonder, wait a second, where in the world did all of our scholarships go? How come I'm not being able to take a full class? You can't because you already took kids. And this is the huge loophole that I think maybe the NCAA needs to address. I was talking to someone in a very prominent athletic department about this the other day. And they were talking about the players being very foolish and not understanding right now. When you go in the portal, let's say you got two years left to play. What do you think a college staff is going to do long-term now, right? In the immediacy, it's a problem. But long-term, here's what players are going to find. If I go in the portal, and let's say I'm a linebacker, I'm pretty good. I just can't start where I was, but I'm pretty good. I go in the, I go in the transfer portal. I got two years left to play, and I'm hoping that a program out there will take me. Well, let's say that that staff that's thinking about taking me has another high school prospect that they roughly evaluate as equal to me. Which one do you think they're taking? The one that can give them two years and count against their 25? or the one that could give them four years and count against their 25. That, long-term, is what college staffs are going to revert to because they don't want to dig themselves into the, the numbers peril that a lot of programs are right now. So here's what's going to happen. There are going to be even less and less opportunities for landing spots than there are now. There already aren't enough landing spots for kids in the portal. There will be even less in the future because staffs will start to become wise to how math actually works, and so here's where I think it corrects itself. First off, that happens. Secondly, even as it is now, a lot of kids are going to crash and burn in the portal and never be heard from again. But here's the critical third part. High school coaches, high school parents, and responsible college staffs, you have to make sure that high school kids are observing this. The only way it corrects itself is if they observe it. One of my favorite Tracy Lawrence songs is Lessons Learned, and they sure run deep. They don't go away and they don't come cheap. That's the way it's got to work here. And if you will observe... You don't have to learn every lesson the hard way. You can let some kids before you learn it the hard way. And then when you're sitting there and you're sitting up late at night, staring at the ceiling in your dorm and practice has gone terrible and you're not where you want to be on the depth chart, it could be those lessons that other people learn that you observed that keep you on campus. And then you find out a year and a half later, it's the best decision you ever made. I'm not anti-transfer. 
but please do it for the right reasons. And please have things thought through and don't let it be your plan B. Transferring needs to be about plan E or plan F on the list. And there are other ways to go about it is what I'm saying. So lessons are being learned from kids and lessons are being learned from college staffs, the like. How do you make a million dollars if you're rated a two-star player? Sounds like a sales pitch. It's not really because I'm not trying to sell anything tonight. I mean, I would like you to like the video, but that's about it. So Bud Elliott put out a really interesting article that he does yearly, but yesterday it kind of had a different flavor about it. It was, how do you go from being a two-star to a millionaire? Now, the stars don't matter crowd. They're still out there. And as I said on the Late Kick Extra podcast the other day about something unrelated, it's stupid to say that star rankings don't matter. The industry, in actuality, has never been more accurate than it is right now. That's not even an opinion. That's just fact. I'll back, up, I'll back it up with numbers in a second. It's not opinion. It's just fact. Now, as I said on the podcast, smart people say stupid things all the time. Stupid people rarely say smart things. So there are some smart people out there that are otherwise just ill-informed that will walk up to you and say, star rankings don't matter, buddy. It's a crapshoot out there. And you know how they know? Because they've got the anecdotal example of, oh, let's say Peyton Turner, who was a former two-star, and he was uh, drafted 28th overall, first round. He went to the Saints. So, hey, his star rating didn't matter. Yeah, that's right. Okay, for every one Peyton Turner, I got about 475 kids over here that would counter that. But by all means, you do you. So one of the annual rites of passage, one of my favorite traditions unlike any other, it's like the Masters, essentially. Every year it rolls around. You get draft day. And then you get the first round that concludes. And then the next morning, as the sun rises, you can set your clock to it. Some fool out there is going to make a very fancy looking graphic that they think says one thing, but it really says another thing. And what it says, like this year, for example, was there were X number of former five stars drafted, but there were X number more former three stars drafted. And it sounds good because here's the message you think you're selling. Three stars, three st- look, more three stars got drafted in the first round than five stars. What does that mean? Well, here's what it probably means. In the 2017 recruiting cycle, let's just use that one, there were 33 five-star kids. And in the 2017 recruiting cycle, there were 1,850 three-star kids. So what do we think is going to happen with those numbers? And now when we actually look back, the graphic that was making the rounds the other day said 20 former five-stars went in the draft. 112 former three-stars win in the draft. And the evidence here is obviously more three-stars than five-stars. Star rankings don't matter. And then there's this ugly world called percentages that works its way into the equation, or common sense. You can pick any one of them you want to. So how about this little side note? If you want to have some context provided, and this is like being in a cave and someone turns on the flashlight finally, 23 of 33 five-stars were drafted. In that class, let's just take 2017. 23 out of the 33, they got drafted. 13 of them went in the first two rounds. Eight of them went in the first round. Here's how the math works out. If you're a former four- or five-star rated player, in the modern day, not 1994, in the modern age of recruiting, if you are ranked a former four- or five-star recruit, you are about 30 times more likely to be a first-rounder than if you were rated three-star or less. That doesn't mean you ain't got a shot. It just means... People assigning these star rankings, they actually know what they're talking about. I sit in on the call sometimes. I listen to it. This is not a crapshoot at all. There is no dartboard involved. There are people on the road this weekend 
We got a whole army of folks. They're kind of doing it unceremoniously. They're on the road every weekend. These dudes are in camps across the country right now, putting eyeballs on kids you won't even know the name of until 2024 or 2025. They're doing their due diligence. They know the families. They know the coaches. They know the guidance counselors. They know the kids themselves. They get eyeballs on them in some cases a dozen times before the final star rating for their actual class goes in. It's a science now. Doesn't mean there aren't holes, but really they're not holes anymore. They're these little tiny cracks. So it's still possible. Okay, my message is not if you've got a three-star rating, give up on life. Quite the opposite. I think, I don't know if this is a bad word to use. I don't know. Okay, if it is, forgive me. Director Emeritus Colin, you can be in charge. The entire process of looking at a three-star player has been totally bastardized from what it was supposed to be at the outset. Bad? Okay, okay. So the three-star player is still, by the very definition, supposed to be a guy who has NFL potential. Somehow, somewhere along the way, it got turned into, if you're a three-star, eh, it's kind of bordering on scrub territory. No, it's not. That's not how 24-7 sports looks at it at all. There are a lot of really good three-star players every single year. If you weren't good, you wouldn't have three stars next to your name, is the whole point. But Bud Elliott goes a step further. So he puts this piece out. It's still on 247sports.com. And he was examining taking the players who were rated two stars or less and taking those who were rated two stars or less that ended up getting drafted in the top 100 picks of this last NFL draft and asking, how did it happen? Because we do a lot of self-assessment around here after every NFL draft, and some of these kids end up going very high in the draft that we had rated two-star or less, and you want to do quality control and find out, what did we miss? Where would this kid come from? Did he live in the Arctic and transfer somewhere mid-college? Mid well, what you find is there are some common themes. So I'm reading this from Bud. And he's taken all the folks that were rated two stars or less that end up going top 100, let's say, in this last draft. And you got about seven common themes. And chances are, if a kid was rated two stars or less and he's going top 100, it was either because of academic issues in high school, which kind of pushes him off your radar, maybe football not being the primary sport that the kid played in high school. How about being from a foreign country, which is happening more and more now, Maybe you were a full year younger than your peer group, so you were kind of playing up, and therefore you were a little bit off the radar. This is the most popular, the huge growth spurt in college, which I always try and hammer home, especially for linemen. You know, some kids tend to not be fully physically developed by the time they're 17. I know that's a shock, but some kids are still physically developing when they're 18 and 19 years old, so you could have that, which you cannot possibly plan for. Or maybe a kid was injured in high school, so you never got really good looks at him, or how about he had multiple high school transfers? So this, this is not really excuse making. It's just if you are using this for future reference, this could be where the rubber meets the road. He could be in a tiny high school. like That, that kind of stuff still happens. So Bud compiles the list, and there were a few of them. Not many, but there were a few. This is fascinating because sure enough, you go to Peyton Turner. Former two-star kid, drafted first round. Peyton Turner played at Houston, defensive end, and he goes to the New Orleans Saints. 28th overall, first round of the draft. So then you start diving in. Well, all right, bud, what happened there? Peyton Turner comes out of high school. He's 6'5", 217. He just got drafted. He was still 6'5". He weighed 289 pounds. What percentage of body size did Peyton Turner add when he was in college? That stuff happens. How in the world are you going to project a guy adding, what is that? It's like 70 pounds or something like that. Who projects that? You'd be out of a job, as Bud pointed out. You'd be out of a job if you said, you know what, that kid's got 70-pound addition written all over his forehead. So let's just bump him up to a four-star. What about Richie Grant? Richie Grant from Central Florida, a defensive back. 
He goes second round to the Falcons. Richie Grant goes to the Falcons as a 200-pound defensive back. Richie Grant came out of high school as a 165-pound wide receiver. So not only do we have a 35-pound weight gain, we have a position change in college. These are things, these are parameters that clearly you are not projecting when you're watching him in high school. Uh, Dylan Raddins from North Dakota State, really good one here too. He's an offensive lineman. He goes in the second round to the Tennessee Titans. He's drafted as a 305-pound offensive lineman. Great. Good for Richie, or Dylan rather. He exits high school as a 265-pound defensive lineman. Again, adding huge body size and position change. Also, no kid had been drafted from his high school. Or how about this? No kid had even gotten an FBS or FCS offer from his high school in a decade. It was like a town of 4,000-some-odd people. So, yeah, kind of got overlooked there. Whoopsies. And lastly but not least, Brady Christensen, offensive lineman out at Brigham Young. 245 pounds in high school, drafted 305 pounds. He added 25% of his total body in college. That's a quarter. I had stats and info run the numbers. It turns out 25% is right at a quarter of your body. Most of you would have to cut off a leg and a half to equate for a quarter of your body, and this kid just added that. I'm not telling you he played with three and a half legs at Brigham Young, mind you, although they are incredible athletes. I'm telling you no one foresaw that. So this is very interesting. I would encourage you, because there are several more examples. I just cherry-picked four. There are several more examples of how you go from maybe being a two-star guy off the radar to, boom, right front and center, NFL draft. All right, I want to wrap it up with this. There are some key transfers, many that we've already talked about, but there are some transfers that we have not talked a whole lot about on the show. And when I'm circling these key transfers, I want to talk about guys who are maybe going to change division races. Here's where you can cut it in, Colin. How about some key transfers that are going to decide division races potentially this year? Tyke Smith's the first one I want to touch on. He went from West Virginia to Georgia, and I did not get to talk about this one a whole lot when it happened because we had other news breaking that week. This is a huge, integral piece for Georgia's defense, and he's going to play nickel. So if you are maybe unfamiliar with the name Tyke Smith or you didn't watch much West Virginia football, then you're probably, I don't know, 90% of the audience, to be honest with you. But you may be asking yourself, what are you talking about? He's not even a true number one corner. He's just a nickel. Why in the world would a nickel potentially be a deciding factor in a division race or a conference race? Well, I'll tell you, number one, because he's going to a really good team. Number two, he's going to be a plug-and-play type. And number three, if you listen to folks close to West Virginia, or if you watched them last year, Neil Brown had him do everything, man. So he's very well prepared. He was like the Swiss Army knife in their secondary. Very smart player, very instinctive, physically gifted. But here's why it's so big for Georgia. You don't have to guess what you're getting from him, first off. Secondly, Georgia is ultra green. They are like Granny Smith Apple Green, but very talented in their secondary. So here's what they were going to have to do. They were going to have to be worried about not only compounding a lot of those kids from the neck up with how we want you to play corner at Georgia, you're going to have to cross-train some of them at that nickel spot. And not that you don't still cross-train them, but you're not going to have to count on one of them to potentially start for you. That would be more a product of injury at this point. Again, if Tyke Smith stays healthy, it's a non-factor. That's why it's huge. It's one of those tumblers that when it falls into place, hopefully everything else in your defensive back room falls into place. And maybe you're not a finished product in week one, but maybe when you see Georgia maximize whatever it is they're going to be this year, it's 15% better, 20% better than what you thought it could be because that piece, ironically, at nickel 
ended up panning out and everything else just kind of fell into place. Jamison Williams, haven't been able to talk about this one yet either, the wide receiver, transferring from Ohio State to Alabama. I asked around with some folks who were close to Alabama last night, and they said, yep, the hype is real. And by hype, I mean plug and play. He's going to walk into Alabama and you know probably be penciled in to be a starter for them. I want to caution, because I think a lot of people have looked at this move, and they said, well, Alabama would not be bringing this kid in if they weren't kind of scared of what they have or don't have at wide receiver right now. I don't think that's the word to use at all. What I think they saw is a quality player out there and the opportunity to get him. They recruited him out of high school. So they want him. Uh, He's got speed, probably better speed than anybody they have in their stable right now. It's going to be very, very good. So he's got that I'm not going to compare him to Waddle, but that factor, that kind of that kind of speed, that kind of juice, he's got that. Probably not the most physical guy in the world, but he's got the kind of speed element you want. But here's the other aspect. They have immense confidence in these young receivers they have coming in. You saw Hall in the spring game. You haven't even seen Christian Leary yet. You haven't seen JoJo Earl yet. They're all going to be studs, but they're all very young. And so what they're probably asking down there is, number one, why turn it away if we can have it? Number two, they're saying... What if we're not where we want to be in week one? What if, uh, as we rub our magic eight ball, it says, mm, receiver room's not really going to hit stride until week eight? Well, this helps that a whole lot. And so I really don't think it's a cause for concern at all. I think Alabama's going to have one of the better receiver rooms in the country this year. It may be a, I know this is going to shock you, it may be a step or two off from having Jalen Waddle and Henry Ruggs and Jerry Judy and Devontae Smith, but I still think it's going to be really good. Charlie Brewer's a name I talked about briefly, but I wanted to revisit this. Because this one's really underrated. This is a kid who went from Baylor to Utah, and maybe he's off your radar too. But this is going to have an impact on the Pac-12 South. You mark my words. Charlie Brewer, I don't know if you realize this, you Baylor fans do, he owns the all-time completions and touchdowns record at Baylor. He started there since like 2010. feels like he's been there forever. I think he could literally... He's probably close to being at that retirement age and collecting a lot of benefits from the state of Texas. So he's been there for a long time. But then last year happens, and not only are they replacing an entire coaching staff, of course, you know, you got the pandemic, so you don't get a lot of spring or any spring. And then the season was thrown for a loop because they they got gutted, man. They had games thrown all over the place. Uh, They had postponements. Baylor got hit hard. And it never clicked for him last year. So Charlie Brewer says, I'm going to go to Utah. Kyle Whittingham's out there. It's a proven system. It's a contending team. It is a workable quarterback situation. They've got Cam rising there, but I think Charlie Brewer probably walks in and is the starting quarterback. I think he went like 15 for 15 in the spring game. If there's one thing history has taught us, it is to completely base your expectations off the spring game. So Utah against the world, Utah by 90. But in reality, Charlie Brewer at Utah could very well be the linchpin and the deciding factor in the Pac-12 South race. This could actually be a guy that decides which team shows up in that Pac-12 championship game. That's how pivotal, that's how important a role I think he'll play at Utah. And finally, Ty Chandler. We've talked a lot about Eric Gray transferring from Tennessee going to Oklahoma. Ty Chandler also transferring, but he's not going west. He's headed east. Head east, young man. And he's going to North Carolina. I had a good old-fashioned, well-placed source reach out the other day and tell me out of all these transfers that have happened so far, Ty Chandler to North Carolina may be one of the most underrated, perfect fits of any kid that's moved anywhere this cycle so far. Ty Chandler is looked at as a perfect puzzle piece for Phil Longo's offense. 
fits right in, is the absolute mold for what they want in a tailback there. If you'll watch, whether it be Clyde Edwards-Alaire in 2019 or Najee Harris in 2020, now these are stud running backs, obviously, but I'm asking you, think about the skill set. What can they do? They can pick up tough yards between the tackles if you need them to, but they're also excellent swing options in the receiving game out of the backfield. You don't give up one to get the other. Ty Chandler in the proper offense, and I would not ever mistake what he was playing in at Tennessee as the proper offense. Ty Chandler in the proper offense can be not only a difference maker, but he can be one of those guys that makes you turn on the TV Saturday about week four and say, wow, I didn't know Ty Chandler was that good. And wow, North Carolina looks like a real threat. Kind of go hand in hand there. So Jamison Williams, Tyke Smith, Charlie Brewer, Ty Chandler. Don't be caught off guard in week two asking where these guys came from. Jesse's showing you a lot of the names that we have an eye on here if you're watching on YouTube. I mean, Wandell Morris, we talked about him earlier tonight, Demarcus Bowman down at Florida. But there are so many names. These aren't just these fringe number 83, 84, and 85 type guys on your roster that are going somewhere else to ride a bench. Tyreek Stevenson could be a first-round draft pick for all we know from Miami. So there are a lot of impact names. And inevitably... And that's the fun of this because we don't know where it's going to be. But inevitably, someone's division race, or maybe several someone's division races, are going to be decided by kids who were transfers. It's just the way college football is going to be. You don't have to like it. I'm not telling you what your opinion should be on this. I'm just telling you, if you want to, if it makes you sleep better at night, just don't pay attention to the transfer portal and just watch the teams for what they are in the fall. Now, having said that, don't abandon the show. We need you on the show. But if you, if you just rather ignore the transfer portal, that's fine. If you want to hit mute, you can hit mute. Uh, but stay tuned into the show. And thank you so much for doing that. So again, I want to remind you, follow me on Instagram. Got a lot of fun things planned over there, at Lake Kick Josh. Anyone who wants to book a Zoom consultation, extremely proud. Bordering on being able to announce some things for some people that have already gone through that with me and are ready to launch their own ventures or be hired in some cases by... Um, reputable media organizations really fun and proud to even be able to play a small part in that if you want to book one of those at late kick josh or you can just email me josh page 706 at gmail.com good solid 45 minutes tonight so thank you so much we'll be back live sunday night until then for director emeritus colin jesse the entire crew in connecticut i'm josh pate signing off have a great rest of your evening and god bless